Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnick. This episode is a continuation of our environmental diplomacy series. Today, we're talking about the Arctic region and the power of science diplomacy. Our guest is Gozia Smezyek. Hi, Gozia. Welcome. Hello, Kelsey. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. So you are a researcher at the Arctic Center. You're also a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Lapland in Finland, and you're a fellow at the International Arctic Science Committee as part of the Social and Human Sciences Working Group. Wow. I cannot wait to dig in and understand more of your work. So right off the bat, can you sum up for us, what is it exactly that you do? I'm political scientist by training, and um, my work, I think I could actually divide into two spheres. So the one that is more academic, um, which is which relates directly to my PhD research, which of course is on the Arctic region and on the institutional governance of the of the Arctic. And more, I would say, well, research, conference work that that I do at the Arctic Center, which of course still is very much based in my in my academic work. Um, still I I very much see the difference between these two aspects. So um, this one being more on informing policy making or decision making on the Arctic. So do you feel like there is a term such as Arctic diplomacy? And if so, how would you define it? I think it is very interesting to think about this term of Arctic diplomacy. And even though it is not broadly used, I would say it is actually a very good overarching term for for the region. And there, I think so many other aspects of diplomacy come under it or within this term of Arctic diplomacy starting, of course, from climate diplomacy because of climate change being the major driver of changes and the profound transformation of the region. But so is also Arctic diplomacy to me a lot about science diplomacy. So about this amazing collaborative efforts of scientists in the region that would try to foster our understanding of um, of the role that Arctic place in in the world and for example in its climate system and of course arctic is also very much about i would say the most traditional notion of diplomacy so the one that tries to bring regions um into into peace and collaboration and of course the arctic is absolutely the most amazing example of this so so i would say yes arctic diplomacy I would dare to say that there is such a term and we can understand many other dimensions of diplomacy within that. Mm -hmm. What is the risk of not having Arctic diplomacy? What do we gain by focusing on this region? Again, the advantages, the benefits of focusing on the region. I'm not even sure this is this is maybe the most right way to put it, but they but they are immense and they stretch first of all, from the most traditional geopolitical notion of security and diplomacy, because um, what perhaps not so many people are at present aware of that um, 
After Russian annexation of Crimea, well, of course, relations between United States and its allies and Russia, on, on the other hand, um, were very quickly deteriorated. And we could we could hear, and even today, well, we hear about the clash um, of those countries in so many regions of the world. The reason why the Arctic has been so remarkable recently was that it was the only region where this close collaboration between United States and other countries, including all the Nordic countries and Russia, um, it remained nearly intact, even though the, the relationships in all other parts of the world basically collapsed. So, so even if this was the the one reason, well, I would say it absolutely justifies our our focus on on the Arctic and what we can learn from from there. Of course, there was there was a lot of uncertainty um, whether whether the Arctic Council, so the primary intergovernmental forum for circumpolar cooperation, whether it will actually survive this tension, because the Arctic Council, the circumpolar cooperation from the very beginning was about bringing the former Cold War adversaries into collaboration, United States, Nordic countries, and, and Russia, to bring those countries to, to the one table to discuss matters of, of the high north. So, um, so this uncertainty, this open question whether this cooperation will continue in the aftermath of the crisis in Ukraine was a very big one, and yet, I think everybody agrees now that this collaboration is even stronger because exactly because it survived those tensions. And even more interestingly, for example, for myself, and what we saw just, just last week in Fairbanks was that it was amidst all those tensions that um, the task force of the Arctic Council that was co-chaired by representatives of the United States and Russia was able to negotiate third legally binding agreement coming from the Arctic Council, the one on scientific collaboration in the region. And this all happened after the Ukraine. So I think there are, there are so many things that we could look into the Arctic when it comes to diplomacy. Agreed. These are such amazing case studies and very impactful work as well. So yeah, tell us about Fairbanks. What were you up to in Alaska? Was this a meeting of the Arctic Council? Yes, this was the ministerial meeting of the Arctic Council. So the way the Arctic Council works is that every two years, um, ministers from eight Arctic states, members of the Arctic Council, they meet to, to sign the declaration and set directions for the Arctic Council for the next two years. It is also um, the meeting where the chairmanship of the Arctic Council goes from one Arctic state to, to the next one on a rotating basis. So this time it was the end of the United States chairmanship of the Arctic Council. And at that meeting, Rex Tillerson, so of course the current Secretary of State, he passed the gavel to Minister of Foreign Affairs of Finland, which now will lead this institution for, for the next two years. So, of course, those are meetings of huge importance, and I think they also very well illustrate the importance that is currently paid to, to the Arctic, because um, I guess what many, uh, many listeners may not be aware of, when the Arctic collaboration began, it was really a very low profile, so it was mostly of interest 
um, to people in the ministries of environment, to, to scientists, but definitely not to the ministries of foreign affairs and certainly not in the United States. And now, 20 years later, it, is, uh, it was the first ministerial meeting of the Arctic Council where actually ministers of foreign affairs of all eight Arctic states met together. So it was something really significant, and I think it really well illustrates how high today Arctic is on the agenda. I'm actually on Twitter right now checking out the Arctic Council, and I know this is silly, but I love the logo. It's so cute, this little Arctic fox with the globe. I absolutely agree, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great, and I also see that by handing the torch over to Finland, Finland was ready to take leadership with some new emojis, some Arctic-themed emojis. Exactly. They prepared very well for taking over this chairman, so they are awesome. Yeah, it's so great. There's a reindeer, there's um, a flag and a, and a sled. Okay, wonderful. So this is great. We'll probably be able to learn more and find more through this digital engagement. Of course, feel free to check out Gozia on Twitter. It's Goza Smiazjek, and I'll include a link in the podcast interview page. And then, of course, the Arctic Council is just at Arctic Council. Um, for any of us looking to find more information or if we're excited to learn more, what do you think, Gozia? Where should we start? Do you have some favorite resources? I would say that this increasing digital presence definitely makes things way easier for for people to to raise their awareness of arctic issues but i think it is also now you can you can follow the arctic issues even in the mainstream media which definitely has not been the case even a few years ago and and now so often if you go to the new york times website or the washington post they would have their their pieces covering the arctic issues of course many of them they relate to Arctic environment, especially to, to the climate change and disappearing sea ice. But also when it comes to political issues, I would say this is usually a good start. And from this, you can build on to, to go into, into other more regional resources. So, for example, I would say that people interested more in Arctic issues, I would definitely recommend the Arctic Journal that they can find online, which covers many of the regional issues. And there is also a bunch of newsletters, but I guess it is really some for someone who already gets more and more interest in, in the region, which of course I highly encourage. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should, we could start a hashtag like Arctic Nerds Unite. <laughs> Absolutely. And then use those Finnish emojis. Exactly. <laughs> so you are also a researcher at the Arctic Center, which is at the University of Lapland in Finland. So I wonder if this is going to be an exciting time for Finland to take leadership of the Arctic Council and to be doing research there. It looks amazing. You guys have an Arctic studies program. You have educational modules on Arctic governance, Arctic anthropology, and of course, uh, the Northern Institute for Environmental and Minority Law. The Arctic Center is also a member of the European Polar Board. Tell us about any and all of this. Well, I guess I could focus more on the Arctic Center and the University of Lapland. So first mm -hmm. of all, maybe the location um, itself is, is interested, 
is interesting to people because um, the Arctic Center, the University of Lapland, is located in Rovaniemi, which is exactly at the Arctic Circle line um, in Finland. So most of the people who who go there, they actually they the the reason why they travel to Rovaniemi, why they travel to North, is of course Santa Claus, which perhaps. Here, people in the U.S. believe that he lives in Alaska or in Norfolk, but the truth is what all the fans can confirm, that he actually <laughs> lives in Rovaniemi. So that's, so that's maybe one, um, one of the tourist facts. Um, but speaking about the university, University of Lapland is the northernmost university in the European Union, and the Arctic Center is really unique in in its focus on the Arctic region in bringing specialists, scientists, and scholars of the multitude of disciplines and all focus on the Arctic. So as you earlier mentioned, there are different programs, including the Arctic Studies program, but also different research groups, so that we focus not only on natural sciences, on glaciers, but also a lot on governance issues, on rights of indigenous peoples, on the anthropology, on many issues related to, to Russia. So all of this comes under the roof of the Arctic Center. And I have to say that since the moment I joined the center, it has been absolutely the most rewarding and thrilling research environment. So absolutely the place to, to do the research on the Arctic. So tell us about your specific research. What are you interested in and what is the research that you're working on? And for anyone that wants to follow along, if you go to arcticcenter.org, and check out Gozia Smeziak. Um, her publications are awesome. Um, the role and effectiveness of assessments in policy making, the role of the Arctic Council chairmanship, 25 years of International Arctic Science Committee. All right. So I think actually with the three publications that that you mentioned, I think that it is it is clear where my research interest is, and it is always in the field of science and policy making. So basically how these two spheres, science and decision making, how they interact and how we can increase the input from science to decision making, how those two spheres, which are so fundamentally different, how they how they interact, how they interplay. And of course, in my case, mostly, mostly in the Arctic. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, there is more what I would consider academic part of my work. So the research that I do for my PhD, which is very much about science policy interplay in the Arctic Council. And the work that I do for other projects, including now the background project for the Finland's prime minister's office for the Finnish chairmanship of the Arctic Council. So this work is a little bit difference in the sense that it is more, I would say, goal-oriented, which I think comes as no surprise to anyone who works with any decision-making bodies that oftentimes, well, though this kind of research does not require that much um, theoretical work, and oftentimes it is shorter and yet much more to the point and provides oftentimes, well, substantial substantial background to the work that decision makers are are doing in the region so so i would say there is this i see this um kind of two two parts two parts of my research and yet 
in all its aspects. It is always about science and policy making, effectiveness of international environmental institutions. This is something that I'm hugely interested in. And also matters of scientific collaboration, so how we can facilitate this collaboration, how we can support this, and also what role science can play with that in, in diplomacy, in international diplomacy. Okay, so I want to get into some of the details of this. One of the projects you're working on is the strategic environment assessment of the development of the Arctic. So could you shed some light on this, especially some of the diverse goals that you may encounter in your work? What is the point? Do we want to develop the Arctic or do we want to protect it from further development? I think this is the excellent question that probably could fit so many international environmental negotiations where there is no straightforward answer. And I think the real challenge and the ultimate goal is how we can balance those those things. Because I realize that for many people who look at the Arctic from the outside, this is this pristine region of endless wilderness and white landscapes. But the truth is also mm, some of people forget in this that there are people living in the Arctic whose, whose life and well-being very much depends on economic development. And the thing is that the very rapidly advancing climate change mm, puts their life I don't want to use the word risk, but it really creates huge challenges to their traditional ways of life. So oftentimes they cannot rely anymore on their ways of getting food and support and, and money in the way they did in the past. So they need to find new ways. And sometimes economic development is, is really what brings these opportunities in the region. So as much as I would love to say that there is that the answer is is one and it's straightforward or i'm afraid that exactly the whole art is how we can bring those divergent diverse views to the table and work out the solution that that will help us all so i would say this is very much the case of the arctic and this is this is what we are dealing um with all the time mm -hmm. okay yes now i'm understanding why the processes are so key here because we need a way to kind of map a way forward in the Arctic. Absolutely. And perhaps one thing that I would like to add, and I think that this is so much worth stressing when it comes to the Arctic, is the presence and involvement in all these processes of indigenous peoples of the Arctic, which is very much not the case in so many other regions of the world. And in the Arctic, it has been the case from the very, very beginning. And even today, when the Arctic is so important on international agenda, still indigenous peoples are among the first participants at the table. So if you looked carefully at the picture from the Fairbanks ministerial meeting, you will see that all eight Arctic ministers of foreign affairs, that they sit at the table with representatives of six indigenous organizations of, of the Arctic, which is absolutely unprecedented setting in international relations. And all of them, so both ministers and those representatives, they have exactly the same time to give their remarks and they listen to one another and they are there at the table to work out 
those things. So this is something something absolutely remarkable in in the Arctic, and I think war definitely worth bringing to other parts of the world. Does what happens in the Arctic affect the rest of the world? How? I think by now it is it is almost so often repeated in in the Arctic. We we even tend to forget about the importance of the statement that what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. And of course, this very much starts with the climate of our planet. So Arctic is considered, well, the cooler, the refrigerator for the entire globe. And with the changes that we see now in the region, they are already profounding profoundly impacting the rest of the world. So we have more and more studies that, for example, link changes in the Arctic with um, with extreme weather events in mid-latitudes. So even though, of course, scientists are still not entirely sure how those extremely complex connections were work out, they nonetheless can more and more confirm that there is a clear connection between that. So that's that's one of the most obvious examples. But another thing is, of course, the impact of the Arctic, for example, on the oceans. But so it is also when it comes to geopolitical or more economic cooperation. So with the with the decreasing Arctic sea ice, what we see and what is what is so worrying for so many scientists, of course, to many people, they also see the opening new ocean. So the, the Arctic Ocean, which has been always closed because of the sea ice, now we can see that that this is the ocean which is open for at least part of the year. And according to many projections, it will be it will be ice free in summer quite um, quite um, quite soon. So of course this generates also huge interest for other countries in the world, including China including China, India, Japan, South Korea, but also the European Union and, and many others. And we could see this interest. So we have, we've observed this interest also in the Arctic Council when it was 2007, 2010, when the Arctic Council started receiving huge number of applications for the observer status. So from all the states, which wanted to attend the meetings of the Arctic Council to better understand the region and what's happening there. It was all connected to this climate change and economic opportunities opening in the region. And today, the Arctic Council has more than 30 observers, including, as already mentioned, China, India, and most recently accepted in Fairbanks, for example, Switzerland. Goja, you're based at the University of Lapland, but currently your PhD work has taken you to the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara. How is it working in two such diverse places? And is it a challenge to help those places like warm California and the cold Arctic see how they connect and how they can work together? I think that's a very interesting question, though I need to say that I have not seen that much of a challenge in that, much because of the environmental focus of the of the school that I'm in, that's one thing, but also, of course, because of the huge environmental awareness that you see in California. So even though people here, they may be not so aware of the Arctic issues, still, for example, ocean matters are 
are, of course, what they are extremely interested in. And I would say that oftentimes it makes things so much easier than when you can relate to something that perhaps is not directly your field of research, but that other people can connect with. This is kind of where you create the bonding. So starting, for example, from ocean matters, well, when I'm saying that I work on the Arctic, there is, of course, already some some commonality there. So this actually, this has been quite uh, quite simple. And, and of course, um, I guess Arctic has something that that attracts people so whenever whenever i say that i do my research on the arctic people are usually very interested right away it just sounds so exotic to many people that probably if i was saying that i work on tropical islands people actually would have less interest because they are so <laughs> so amazed how would anybody like to live in the arctic circle so i would say that's maybe a matter of of paradox yeah Okay, so yeah, share with us a little bit about your own story. Where are you from and how did you get into this work? Were there early experiences that you had that let you know that you had an interest in science, perhaps perhaps as a as a kid? Well, I wish I could say that my way that my way to the Arctic was that straightforward. Um, but probably the something that can be that can be interesting is that actually I'm myself from non-Arctic country. So I'm originally from Poland and Poland has great tradition of Arctic science and research, but it is very much the natural science research, way more than any social science activities in the region. And it is fair to say that I was never interested in Arctic issues until quite late. It was actually after my after my studies that I did in the field of political science and international relations that this interest in the Arctic sparked. So so it was always for me political science and IR, which which was my focus, and to the large extent the European Union. And within this realm I was always I was always interested in environmental and energy issues. So I worked, well, within my master studies program, I worked both on environmental law and also on linking emission trading schemes. So those were things that I was interested in. And then after my graduation from the College of Europe, which is very much international environment, I was thinking about doing PhD, but at the same time I was working I started working at the College of Europe on the administration side. And it was, I remember a meeting with a professor um, who used to be, who used to be a Polish diplomat in the north of Russia. And I remember when we talked, when I mentioned to him that I'm thinking about doing PhD and my basic interest is in the energy and environmental field. He said, why wouldn't I do my research on the Arctic? And I remember this was just pure revelation because when he when he said the word Arctic, I was just mesmerized. <laughs> I thought this is exactly what I want to do, <laughs> even though I had no idea about this. And but I thought, well, why wouldn't I just start? So it was six years ago, I would say. And from this moment, this interest developed. So I started thinking how I. I could bring my own, I want, I want to say, well, expertise, what I knew from my earlier 
from my earlier studies, is there anything that I could bring to the Arctic studies? So I started working on or looking into European Union involvement in the region, which was a few years ago still at the very initial stages. And I kind of work worked from there. So it was never a very well-planned career path. It was just, I would say that I just had amazing luck with people I met and the opportunities that opened on the way that I was eager to explore. How great. And I love the combination of using social sciences and natural sciences. I love it too. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there is a little bit of a rumor where the field of science is male dominated. How do you feel? Do you ever feel kind of singled out as a, as a female working in this? I need to say that this is the, the, the line, some people would probably say dividing line, that actually I did not experience that much in my field, but it has perhaps something to do with being social scientists. So I guess people with natural science um, background experience Maybe women working uh, in the Arctic, they could say more about this. And it is very probable that their experience might might differ. Mine actually, as I said, I could not really say that being female or young woman in, in this field has been any challenge. I would even say perhaps to the contrary, because Arctic in in so many ways, I would say is maybe at the forefront of of certain efforts, including, for example, support, huge support and mentorship given by senior accomplished scholars to to young professionals. This has been always my experience, and I know not only mine, that makes this Arctic research so, so rewarding. And it is really facilitation that, that we receive, I would say, is is really beyond words so so that's that's one aspect but perhaps another thing that i could relate to which is which is not not so much the focus of your question is actually the division between natural and social sciences that i would say is still very much the case and this is this has been actually a huge challenge for me how oftentimes to convey the message coming from my research which is not only social science, but political science, how to bring it to natural scientists who oftentimes just think about this field of research as nothing more than a bunch of opinions. So so I would say this has been something that, I, that I've been challenged by, but also extremely interested in how to, how to overcome this, how we can bring disciplines and people from different disciplines working closer together this is something that i absolutely consider one of the crucial issues and the one that i enjoy the most in my work yes and i think that's why diplomacy truly is at at the core of your work what would you say to your younger self what advice would you give to young women that might want to follow in your footsteps in my footsteps I'm not sure I would I would formulate this question exactly this way because probably one advice that I could give to to my younger self or perhaps someone interested in in this in this kind of work 
is not to be afraid of actually creating and carving out your own path. I think the the world today is just changing so fast that next to more traditional career paths or ways, there are so many new ones opening and it just takes courage and we should believe in ourselves to to take it to create these opportunities not to be afraid to to use them so with this i would also put a lot of stress on trusting yourself on on trusting in the value of what you are able to bring to the table which i think sometimes or maybe even very often we underestimate, we don't see exactly in the same way as other people do our own assets, some intangible things that we that we bring. And sometimes we take them as something obvious or take or we take it for granted. Whereas it is only when we really start interacting with other people that we see that they can really appreciate our our views and and skills that we that we bring thanks for listening to the women in diplomacy podcast the theme song for this podcast is called misty moses and it's by the artist rodrigo y gabriela use of that recording is graciously provided by rubyworks records in dublin ireland for more information and to download more music by Rodrigo Gabriela, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org.